Hey, hi, this is Frank Conley. We're here with another episode of Dig Deeper, Mind Edge Learning's occasional podcast on critical thinking and creativity. Uh, our guest today is Chris Colbert, Managing Director of the Harvard University Innovation Lab. Uh, Chris is a, uh, has often been described as a serial innovator. Uh, he has helped uh, to found and build uh, several different companies, including uh, Holland Mark, the advertising agency, uh, and uh, helped do a turnaround in a division of Scholastic Publishing. When he's not uh, toiling away uh, here at the Harvard iLab, he is uh, working with a new venture called Tribe, which is a uh, post-college learning community for people in, the th- in their 30s and 40s. Uh, Chris, welcome. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. And uh, let's just start with a, a couple things. First of all, what is what does the Harvard I Lab do? What what do you do here? And 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 who is this? Uh, who is the lab open to? The I Lab is uh, <clears throat> actually one of three labs that comprise the Harvard Innovation Labs. It's an ecosystem that exists to support Harvard alumni and Harvard students from any of the twelve schools. Uh, so part co-working space, part incubator, part accelerator, all oriented towards providing the resources necessary to help, again, Harvard alumni, Harvard students turn their ideas into into viable ventures. Obviously, innovation bears some relationship to, to creativity. We've talked some in, this, uh, in these podcasts about creativity as a workplace skill. One of the things that we're kind of interested in is creativity and, and, and or innovation. Are those things that can be taught or is it simply the spark of genius that some people have and some people don't? So I think you have to start with what's the difference? Mm-hmm. A lot's been written on this and I'm not sure there's an absolute one, there's one answer to it. My point of view is, and actually I'm stealing my definition of innovation from somebody who shared it with me recently. Innovation is defined as a measurable improvement, whereas I think creativity is not necessarily about improvement, simply about the task of creating something f- from nothing. May or may not be an improvement. So I think the, the, in the corporate world, the more essential capacity is innovative capacity, which is the ability to look at the business, look at the customer, look at the look at the organization, look at the whatever, and identify uh, ways to affect measurable improvement. Could be could be like significant ways, like wholly new uh, approaches to something, or could be marginal uh, improvements, but still innovative in that they are making something that was better better than what it was. Um, now, so, is, but there is still some relationship to, to creativity or, or, or not? I think so in, the, in that if I had to, and again, I'm not sure there's an absolute answer to that question, but if, in my view, my very personal view, it is the capacity, the, the, the overlap between the two circles of creativity and innovation is the capacity to see what might be. And that sounds probably a, a, little, a little wacky or a little esoteric. But as I think about it, as so I was, I was a fine artist in, in undergrad um, until I realized the error of my ways, and and now I'm a businessman, and you know some call me an innovator. My unique capacity as a creator, as an artist, or as an innovator, as a businessman, is the ability to see what might be, to to sort of to take either a blank canvas, a blank situation, and imagine what we could do. Or to take a problem situation and imagine how we might be able to solve it. Or to take an existing capacity, an existing product, and to imagine uh, how it might actually be better. So I think in, in that context of, of, of seeing what might be, that's the, that is the overlap for me. So What's it, the overlap it, for you? <laughs> 
I, I, I haven't had a creative thought since Nixon was president. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, how does one foster innovation? I mean, is it uh, again? Is that is that a, a particular skill? Is it uh, is it something that uh, yeah? Is it something that you do here? You're, you're fostering innovation here? Yeah, I mean, I think we we do it here on a couple levels. So on the one hand, our our task is to foster innovation among our customers, namely the students that come here from all over Harvard. Uh, and and some alumni that come here as well, and so so how do we foster that? And one of the I think most interesting aspects of it is this idea of psychological safety. So uh, Google a couple of years ago did a study trying to understand what informs uh, what enables high performing teams, and what they arrived at after extensive Googlian study is that the most important facet or attribute is psychological safety. And if you actually think about it, it makes perfect sense that if you create a safe environment for people, they are more willing to take risk in every form. They're more willing to take risk in ideating. They're more willing to take risk in putting their their ideas on the table. They're more willing to take risk in challenging the ideas of somebody else in the room. They have no fear in their, in their capacity to to open up and and imagine what what might be and and so part of what we do here is is try to affect psychological safety and we do that primarily by focusing on community by connecting people to each other creating family when i first got here two years ago there's a kitchen and i thought that's silly like why do we have a kitchen why do we give them food why do we you know seems frivolous and what I've come to realize, the hearth is a really important facet of creating an innovative, uh, innovative community and an innovative environment. So that's sort of how we support teams in their innovation. Then there's the other question of how do we how do we motivate our own staff to be innovative? So we are a business. We are effectively a seven-year-old startup looking to evolve. So how do we how do we uh, how do we motivate the 22 people on our team to be more innovative to contribute to our innovation? And certainly psychological safety is a critical piece of it. The other piece I would say is is by example. If if an if a leader wants an organization to be innovative, to take more risk, to be more open-minded, to be more creative, he or she must exhibit those behaviors. And certainly, at a minimum, not exhibit the opposite behaviors. And we see this time and time again in corporate America, particularly the Fortune 1000, who are stuck on their sort of legacy views and holding on to what has been, and at the same time, out of the corner of their mouth, telling the organization that they must be more open to change, they must be more risk amenable. But they themselves, as leaders, are not. And I would bet you dollars to donuts that those organizations will not survive long term. The only way to create an innovative organization is through innovative leadership, or at a minimum through leadership that that exemplifies the attributes of an innovator. And yet, and, and as you were saying, it, it seems like in an awful lot of uh, institutions and, and, and businesses, the creativity and, and innovation are buzzwords. Uh, they, 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 they pay them lip service, but the, but the culture doesn't support uh, doesn't support those. What um, can I comment on that? Oh, you might, absolutely, you absolutely. So I, I wrote a, a piece. I have a, a blog, uh, chriscolbert.com, and I wrote a piece recently uh, called uh, entitled "How Do You Look?" And it wasn't about appearances. It was actually about what perspective do you have as an organization or an individual? Do you look forward or do you look backwards? 
And if you actually think about all the entities that exist in the world, from your best friend to your employer, to your city, to your country, it's pretty easy to declare whether they look forward or backwards. And I think what you see in a large, lot of large corporations, and by the way, a lot of institutions, is that there's a tendency to look backwards, to revel in and attach more value to the past, the legacy, the history, the, the, the business model that has served us so well for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, versus looking forward and saying, we have no idea what's coming. We do know that what was may no longer be relevant. And therefore, we must evolve aggressively. We must innovate assertively. You know, looking, looking back has no value. And, and so I think if, you're gonna, if you want to be an innovator as an organization, you have to let go of the, of the past. It, ha it, has, it has no relevance. And, and that's, now that's, that's, like, that's like blasphemy. <laughs> I would say you're you're here in the womb of a 382-year-old organization that 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 seems to look at the past a fair amount, uh, and and not unique. I, I mean, I think yeah. the vast majority of 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 higher education institutions uh, revel in their history, and and I think the, I guess the good news for them is they the shelf life of these things is is preternaturally longer than the shelf life of any other industry, and so I think they'll be able to get away with it for some period of time. I would say eventually the world will change and they will be vulnerable uh, should they choose never to, t to fully embrace innovation. That's calm rising through change and through storm, I believe is how the alma mater goes. But, um, um, how about uh, for, you know, for young people today who are, uh, whether, whether they're students here at the, at, at the Innovation Lab or, or uh, students who are even younger, you know, high school, early college and stuff like that, what, what, what sort of advice can you give them about how to, how to be more innovative in the way they approach not, not just yeah. business but their lives? Yeah, an excellent question. So um, I actually wrote a book recently called Getting Unstuck, uh, not yet published, but it basically seven lessons on how to, how to lead a better life. And the first lesson is evolve or else. And the point is, and by the way, there's a business parallel book that I'm writing. And the first lesson of the business, how to, lead, how to build a better business is evolve or else. <laughs> like this is the new world order that I don't care whether you're 16 or 66, your capacity to survive, to thrive, to maintain whatever quality of life you aspire to is directly correlated with your capacity to grow. Like the old days of, I'm gonna finish high school, I'm gonna go to college, I'm gonna get a degree, I'm gonna sign on with IBM, Aetna, whatever, and then I'm gonna ride that wave for 30 years till I'm 50, and then I'm gonna like kick back and, and, and have the last five will be helping the, helping the youngins come up, and then I'm gonna retire at 55 with my pension over, like just fundamentally over. And so the new order is you're learning as much at, at 35, 45, and 55 as you were at 15 or 25. And, and it's, a, it's a never ending proposition. And I feel that pressure now, I'm 59 years old, I'm learning more and feel the pressure to learn more th than I actually did when I was when I was 22. And so the thing I would say to, to everybody at any age, if you aren't learning, it's, it's trite, but it's true. If you aren't learning, you are vulnerable. You are fundamentally vulnerable in your job, in your life. And then there's another sort of wacky view of all this, which is 
oh my God, if this is the only life you are given, don't you want to realize the fullest potential of it and of yourself? And in order to do that, you have to you have to consume, you have to build knowledge, you have to build understanding to sort of sit there like a, a, a lump on a log or bump on a log, I think it's the expression, and sort of hope it all works out is somewhere between naive and, and stupid. You know, certainly one of the things that, that we've been looking at in, in other contexts at, at MindEdge is not just continuing education, but, but constant skills training. The need for especially younger people getting into the job market today to be working continually at improving their skills, whether they're hard, hard skills or soft skills. You know, from your standpoint, what are the sort of skills that are most conducive to being innovative, to being, to being creative in the workplace? So I think there's this this funky dynamic that so so one of my beliefs is soft skills are the hardest skills to acquire and the most important and yet in the market's mind soft skills aren't hard and aren't that important and um, what are what are important is are sort of really sort of hard skills like how to code how to whatever technical skills I mean I, I I've I've run businesses my entire life and I would tell you that what separates the excellent employees from the good from the bad are the soft skills. And so two things there. One is that the development of soft skills is a lifelong task. You know, I, I, I actually, sadly, I don't think you learn much in the way of soft skills in a typical liberal arts four-year program. I think you learn stuff. I think things, facts, <laughs> whatever. But you don't learn the soft stuff. And then when you get into corporate America, I think sadly most corporations aren't fully invested in the need to invest in the development of their employees' soft skills. They hesitate on it. And if they do anything, it's like, okay, Frank, we're going to send you like management class. But you know, the funny thing about management class is your ability to really be a great manager in part relies on your ability to know who you are. Introspection and actually appreciation of self, love of self. Your ability to provide support to an employee unconditionally requires you actually first applying support to yourself unconditionally. That's all soft skill stuff that very few, as I said, very few companies actually either get or really care about. And I think it's the, I think it's the big miss. I think it's a big miss on both ends. I think corporations don't really get it. And I think the, the consumer, the consumer still operates as if education ends when you graduate from from undergrad or maybe graduate school. Like, no, 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 no. I'm, again, I'm learning as much today and feel the pressure to learn as much today as I did when I was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Especially now as we're, uh, the sort of the evolution of the job job market and sort of moved towards, at least for a fair number of people, you know, the gig economy. So you're not, you're not going to spend your whole career at IBM. You're going to piece together, you know, three or four gigs, uh, either part-time or, and you're not going to have that, that sort of classic, you know, man in the gray flannel suit career trajectory. But one of the things that means is that, is that you, you don't have the resources of, of, of the corporation to provide you with training, whatever, whatever training it might be. So uh, it seems like there's a, there's a greater pressure on young people in the workforce now to kind of do their own skills training, to find their own. Yes, yes. So one way I've described the the new world is we are all now the ringleader of our own three-ring circus. And the three-ring circus is a Venn diagram. This is my view. And I actually have a three-ring circus today. So I'm the managing director of the Harvard Innovation Labs. I'm an author. I'm writing a a book and a, a speaker. Uh, and then I do a, a modicum of consulting. And, and what's interesting is those three rings are not discrete. 
they are overlaps and the center point that overlap area is where my passion and unique capacities lie so one of the things i advise students today or frankly grown grown adults is it's really i'm listening it's, it's really <laughs> imperative that you 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 spend time with yourself to examine this this intersection of what are you passionate about that you genuinely care about? What are you uniquely capable of? What are your real competencies? And then the third, which is the, probably the funkiest, but maybe the most important is, what is the desired nature of your existence? How do you want the world around you to feel? And my theory is the, the, the three rings of your circus that intersect should capture all three of those things. If you really want to excel, because the truth is your ability to be excellent at something is predicated on your level of connection to the task, which is really a heartfelt proposition, not a mindfelt thing. You've got to care. And so that's where passion really matters and desired nature of existence matters. If you feel really good about the work that you are doing, you will do better work. If you are simply checking the box of this is my job, this is my function to create the paycheck to buy those groceries, I just have a, I just do not believe you will excel. And I, you know, and, and I think that's a shitty part of my front, shitty way to live your life. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. And yet it's the way probably most people do. Well, I, if I can just one more thing to say, I, I think we have not crossed the chasm between the old world and the way of the way of work and the new world. In the old world, there was a presumption that daddy company would take care of me. There was a pension, there was a safety net, there was training. They basically told me what to do. And as long as I did it, I wouldn't, I'd be, I'd be safe. That is so not the new world, but but we haven't we haven't fully grasped that as a society. We haven't grasped that as educators, and I frankly I don't think we've actually grasped that as cor as as corporations. You know, one of my views is if I walk up to you at eleven o'clock on Tuesday morning and you're online buying a pair of shoes from Amazon, I can't care. <laughs> Right. I can't have an issue with that because I sent you an email at eight o'clock last night and I kind of sort of expected you to respond. So the, the whole relationship between the employee and the employer has changed. And the big one is the employee is now a free agent. Even though I'm a W-2, at the end of the day, whether I thrive or not is fundamentally up to me. And, and I don't think the vast majority of humans have grasped that transition at all. Yeah, no, I mean, there a lot of people out there still playing the lottery because I mean, that's, my that's, sister, that's what's going to get them Yeah, my sister got laid off after th 25 years with the company. And this may be harsh of me, but she was she was really upset. And, and, and my response was, you didn't see that coming? I mean, all the stories she was telling me along the way, I'm like, oh, my God, why, why are you even at this company? Like, get the hell out. This is 20 years ago. And she just kept believing that the old model of they're going to take care of me was still true. And it's like, eh, that's not really true anymore. Now, let me ask you, you are obviously working with young people. And, you know, you're at an institution that attracts, you know, very bright, very motivated young people. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of work here, about about the, about whether creativity will be challenged, channeled, I should say, into the right avenues? Uh, you know, you, you're working with the next generation. How does yeah. the next generation look to you? So I'm a warrior by nature, and and you know the current the current state of the world, uh, including the current administration, worries me mightily. And at the same time, I I could say I've probably never been more optimistic about a fu the future. 
in that I believe this generation, from from the sort of tail end of Gen X into millennials into Z or whatever the the new term is, the good news, bad news is they've been exposed to everything. You know, the power of social media and the World Wide Web and everything's in their face. There's nothing that's hidden. And I think that transparency has resulted in um, a renewed uh, activism. And I think with the with the millennials, and I see this with my own kids, there is a desire to uh, help make it all better. You know, when I when I came out of school, my desire was to get a job, to pay the bills, to have to have an apartment, so I didn't have to live at home. And I think the calculus ended. <laughs> ended there. As it did for most of us. Yeah. And I think this new calculus, I mean, I think that still is a calculus for a bunch of kids, obviously, but there's a, a bunch of other kids, and I include the folks here at Harvard, both graduate school and undergraduate level, who are coming out going, uh, we have a somewhere between an opportunity and a responsibility to contribute back to making this this a better a better picture for more people. By the way, of the venture teams that we support here, we have about 170 being incubated right now. The the biggest the biggest percentage are social enterprise teams. In partly impacted by the fact that this, you know, the legacy of, of Harvard is a liberal arts legacy. You've got the Ed School, you've got the School of Government. You know, you you're, you have a you have a bit of bias. You have the Med School. You have a bit of bias in people that are, are care about the world. Um, but um, but I would say still it it, it over indexes on people wanting to wanted to wanted to help make the world a better place. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of what I was trying to get at when I asked, will this creativity be channeled, you know, sort of in in positive directions? And it's, I'm I'm glad to hear that you're optimistic about yeah, that. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Just the other week, uh, my wife and I and our son went on the the march for our lives. Uh, um, uh, you know, inspired by the the, the, the children from. The students, I should say, from Parkland, uh, and uh, uh, and it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, just so much, you know, positive energy there, and that's. I mean, in a way, I was thinking uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm trying too hard to to force it into into the box of creativity, but it seems to me that 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 was an enterprise that was you know sort of social creativity. I mean, absolutely, you know. absolutely. And it's funny. I went to, I went to the march too with my daughter, and um, we were talking about how she's now you know she's 24 and she now has two marches under the belt. She did, she did the women's march uh, not in D.C. but here in Boston, and and she's saying you know I, I realize uh, that this. Both of these marches have opened up my mind, to your point, social create you know a form of creativity, to both the opportunity and the responsibility that I have moving forward. So she will not be a passive uh, participant in uh, how this country unfolds. She, and, and she, I would not say she's the archetypal activist, but that exposure to to social uh, sort of this creative moment, I think, has really stuck with her. Uh, as someone who is around a lot of innovators, do do you see the next big thing out there and a general area in which that you think might get hot? I mean, I mean, the, the, you I'll put know, you on the spot. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's I, fine. I mean, I, you know, I guess my I'm I'm struggling to respond because all I have are are the obvious answers of uh, blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, AI, machine learning, and 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 instead of saying any of those things, I, I'm going to come back to what I just said, which is I think the hot area are are people working really really hard and using some of the latest technologies to have um, material and call it scalable social social impact. Like I, 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 we see this across the board. You know, in the old days, the social enterprise stuff was 
was bleeding heart, uh, not scalable, you know, doing good, but doing it, you know, in, an, in, in, a, nom- in a nominal impact. And the ideas that we're seeing come through here uh, in the social enterprise space are scalable because they're, they're taking full advantage of, of the latest technologies uh, and business sensibilities. And that's, you know, you, you asked earlier about, about uh, what sort of the, who we support here. And the fact that the Harvard Innovation Labs is open to students and alumni from all 12 schools sounds, sounds you know, like, okay, well, who cares? But it's actually probably the most profound thing because you get here, unlike other universities, you get a business school, a student from, you know, HBS working with a student from the Kennedy School working with uh, somebody who's working uh, you know on, on their on their medical degree and that diversity of perspective results in innovations that um, that have a real potential to change the world at scale uh, and that I think is the big the big transformation happening it's not just about people caring it's about people having the, the knowledge and the capacity to care in ways that have real impact well I think that's a that's a great and optimistic note to end on. Uh, I really I want to thank you, Chris, for uh, for thank taking you. the time to be with us. Uh, and that's it for this episode of Dig Deeper. And uh, we'll be back at you uh, next month. Take great. care. Thanks.